Welcome to the Loss and Lifting Talk podcast. The show is created to help you find your confidence by breaking down the complicated science of training and nutrition and turning it into simple, but more importantly, practical solutions that you can implement right away to start creating real results inside your body composition. We don't stop there either. We dive into the mental aspect of fitness to not only build a better body, but a better life all around. Podcasts were the medium where I learned and grew as an individual more than any other place in my life. The goal of this podcast is to give that back to you to start building the exact body and life that you know you're capable of. So without further ado, let's jump into the episode. Alex, what's going on, man? Not much. Just finished an early morning workout. How are you? I'm doing good, man. Doing super good. I'm excited to have you back. For um, for the listeners today, we're doing a Q&A with Alex, who is a coach inside of Lost and Lifting as well. If you guys didn't go and watch the, or not watch, but listen to the, the two weeks ago episode to where we had Alex on and did a Q&A, um, I suggest going back and listening to that where we really break down and, and have a conversation about Alex and his background and how he became a coach with Lost and Lifting and talking about how we're going to start bringing him on and doing a few um, Q&A episodes together per month on Lost and Lifting Talk. So, um, but for everybody that didn't get to listen, Alex, to last week's episode and, and doesn't take the time to go back and listen to it, just give us a, a quick breakdown of you, if that's okay. And like how people can find you and, and where you're at and how just basically just a, a quick rundown. So people have an understanding of who they're listening to, if that's okay. Absolutely. So I am the loss and lifting kind of women's fitness coach. I do more of this kind of like the hormonal side of things, you know, a lot of the kind of like the chronic dieters. I started with Chaz, what was it like January of this year? Mm-hmm. Um, I did in-person training starting in, uh, what was it? Graduated in 2017. So I started that late 2017, did in-person up until um, just January of this year. So I've been doing this full-time since about, I, I made the total switch about four months ago. Up until then, I was kind of doing about kind of half and half. And now it's kind of put my full time into this. And so now I'm just, like I said, the kind of the women's fitness coach kind of dive more into kind of the hormonal kind of nutritional functional nutrition side of things. So. Absolutely. And you live in St. Louis. Yeah. Yes. Midwest, the Midwest. That's the one place in the country that I haven't really spent any time in. Like I've been over to the East coast, spent a lot of time there, obviously, I'm like from the actual Midwest, I would say, like, I would say like Idaho and Utah, like that's like the true Midwest. Do you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like in terms of geographically, have you ever heard that story? Why the Midwest is called the Midwest? Cause like, really it's like the, the mid East. Like if you look at the country, have you ever heard about that? Never even thought about it. Yeah. So I, that always confused the hell out of me. Like why is like Missouri and like Kentucky, like, why are all of those places considered the Midwest when really like where I live is the true Midwest, like Idaho, Utah, you know what I mean? And um, what it was from is because back in the day when the country, again, this is going super off tangent and not anything to do with fitness, but I think it's worthwhile because it's something that's always on my mind. But um, back in the day, like when the country was first founded, right, there was the country was a lot smaller than it was today. Like nobody had been over to the actual West side of the country. Um or anything like that. Like it hadn't been developed or anything. And so the country was much smaller at that point. I can't, I don't know like the exact geographics of how far it came over, but at one point where the, where the country was so much smaller at that time, like where you're at in Missouri was actually the Midwest geographically for like what had been developed. And so it just stuck. And that was called the Midwest forever. When in reality, like these days, I would say I actually live in 
what is truly the Midwest, but mm-hmm. for some reason we still call where you're at the Midwest. Yeah. But, but what I was getting at there was, um, that's the one part of the country that I've never really spent any time in. Like I've been spent a lot of time on the West coast, obviously I'm in like the Idaho, Utah area, the Rocky mountains. And then I've spent a decent amount of time over on the East coast as well, but never truly right there. What, um, do you enjoy it there? Do you see yourself staying there long-term or like, do, what are you, what are your thoughts there? What are your thoughts on the Midwest? Do you enjoy it? Honestly, like I got like, like I enjoy it here, but I'm not sure if it's somewhere I see myself living long-term per se. I'm more of like, if I could have like the Cali weather, mm. but without like the fees of Cali, yeah, that's like the ideal place. So that's kind of like what I'm looking for here. But I don't know, like I truthfully don't find kind of the St. Louis, right? What we know is like the Midwest, like that fascinating, but it's funny because, so we have like in St. Louis, like we have the St. Louis arch, mm-hmm. which I don't think in that kind of anything of it, but I went down there not too long ago and it's about a 15, 20 minute drive from my house. And there's kind of people walking all around and, you know, people was kind of saying hi and whatever. And it's funny because like every single person I talked to had actually driven in to see the arch. And I was like, wait, people actually come to St. Louis just to like see the arch. I was like, this is like a 15 minute drive. So I don't think anything of it. Yeah. So I don't know if it's just because like I've lived here for so long, so long that I don't find it fascinating anymore. But I don't think it's like the greatest, but it's definitely not like the worst. I just kind of find it like average. I find that interesting because I'm the same way. So I live in St. George, um, which is just Southern Utah, right? And I live basically like, I'm literally like 15, 20 minutes from Zion's National Park, which is like one of the most really like when you drive through, it's one of the most incredible places to go and see that I've ever seen um, mm-hmm. in terms of just like the, the landscape and what it looks like. Like you, you feel like you're on a different on a different planet when you when you go and you drive through that park. And whenever we go up there, like there's people from all over the world visiting this place, like not just in the country, but literally all over the world visiting this place and having conversations with them and stuff. It's crazy because when you live so close to something, um, you take it a lot more for granted. Do you know what I mean? Then Mm -hmm. like you don't truly appreciate it because it just becomes your new normal as we all do that kind of thing. But no, it's super interesting. I'm, I was the same way. I grew up in a, a small town in Idaho and for me, like, as I was there, I was always thinking like, oh, there's more, there's more, there's better, there's better. You know what I mean? And we moved away. Mm -hmm. And after I left the, now I really appreciate where I've come from. Do you know what I mean? And like Mm -hmm. almost the simplicity of it, which I would imagine there's some of that where you're at, like in, in Missouri, like it's more simple. It's not huge, big city. Again, I'm not positive, but you're not like right in the city of St. Louis. Are you, are you like out on the suburbs or or what part? No. So we have like, downtown St. Louis, which is kind of like, kind of like where I guess you would consider kind of like the more interesting things. Sure. But it's also not known as like the best area to be in. So it's, it's got like the cool that. architecture. It's got the, you know, like the buildings and like the events and like the, so, you know, that's kind of where you go out. If, like, if you're going out, like you're like, oh, I'm going to downtown. Mm-hmm. But it's also just like part, part, part of the problem is like, that's where everything happens. But part of the problem is also like, that's where also like the you know, crime tends to, you know, happen yeah. the most as well. So it's kind of like 50, 50 there. Absolutely. As with most cities, I think mm-hmm. that's how it is. Like there, there are cool parks, like there's the urban area downtown, which has all of the culture and which is all like super cool and fun to be a part of, but it's not where you want to be long-term. I feel you though, yeah. in terms of moving to California, that's something that we were looking at doing 
when we moved here, the, the plan was either St. George or California. And with, with COVID happening and, and with taxes and just what it's like out there, it didn't make as much sense. The weather is amazing there. Like here in St. George, we're dealing with 110 to 120 degree weather. Well, three or four months out of the year, as opposed to California is amazing, but it didn't make sense. Yeah, same. I, I don't want Cali. I just want the weather. Just same. a different state. So same. 100 percent Well, that's um that's super cool, man. We've got a few questions here that we're gonna pop into. I believe we've got one, two, three, four that actually all came from an IG story that I already answered like in very short form on Instagram and just in the stories, but I figured we'd bring them onto the podcast today and be able to deep dive into them. And that's usually what I like to do on, on Instagram stories, right? You can only go so deep. And then mm-hmm. obviously like it's just quick stuff, but here we can dive into these a little bit deeper that I felt like were helpful questions that a lot of people that just are common questions that come up a lot. So if you're ready, let's just hop into them. Absolutely. Let's hop in. Cool. Question number one is I'm scared to gain weight on a reverse diet. How much will the scale go up? So I'll start this off by saying, I don't necessarily like giving like absolutes. Like I could say X amount of pounds, but then anyone who doesn't fall within that range is going to essentially think like something's wrong with them. So I'll tell you, it's so you'll see kind of different people kind of going through a, through a reverse diet. You'll see, I believe kind of what you classify as like the hyper responders, the ones who maintain, and then the ones who kind of, you know, gain a little bit of weight. For the ones who gain weight, I'll tell you what I've seen within my clients the average, if it's someone does assume like, you know, they were healthy going into the diet itself, this normal diet, like no, like underlying functional issue, they can diet down, get to their goal weight, reverse diet back up, you know, over the course of kind of two, three weeks. And then maybe about three to kind of five pounds is typically what I see as like a kind of general rule of like rule of thumb, but it's also not uncommon for me to see if someone has had like, you know, they say they've been underneath for a long period of time and are wanting to, you know, like they're, say they're trying to, you know, reverse, I guess, you know, months and months and years and years of, you know, chronic dieting. I've seen people gain 10, 15, 20 pounds before they kind of get their body back up to like a healthy kind of set point for themselves. So I think it's a very like, it depends answer, but I'd say like three to kind of five pounds is like, you don't want to gain too much weight but it's also normal to gain some weight. Yeah. I'm yeah. curious to hear your thoughts on that. No, it's, it's interesting because just as you said, it's, it's so dependent on the individual and where their history is coming in and why they need the reverse diet in the first mm-hmm. place. Right. And just like you said, there's usually three different types of responses that I've seen when it comes to reverse dieting. And one is you'll gain an initial two to three pounds right up front, just filling back out with glycogen, filling back up with water, um, getting a little bit more food in your digestive system. And your new set point is above that around that two to three pounds heavier set point, right? Other people will start reverse dieting them. And, um, for heaven knows why they just continue, not for heaven knows why we know why, but they just continue to lose weight. 
while we're reverse dieting, because as we're reverse dieting them, they're still in a deficit. It's just not as big of a deficit. And usually what's happened is you've put a little bit more carbs into their system. Um, cortisol can flush out, they get into a little bit of a more parasympathetic mode and they'll start to drop weight at an even faster rate. And so it's almost like, what the heck just happened here? I fed you more food and you kept losing at just as fast of a rate. Shout out to, um, Haley, who listens to this podcast, who we've just been going through a reverse diet right now. We started a reverse diet at 178 pounds. And as we've increased her 500 calories at this point, over the course of two to three weeks, um, she's down sitting at 175 pounds. And we were dieting for essentially the last 30 weeks and that was still able to happen. So like what I, what I, she's like a highly stressed individual, right? She's super consistent with what she's done. We've taken her from about 200 or or I can't remember what her, I'm not going to say what her weights were on here exactly. But, um, again, we took her from, we, we dropped like 30 pounds, 30 to 35 pounds in the matter of like a 30 week period. And as we started increasing calories, she continued to lose. So it was super interesting with her. That's one way that I've seen things happen. Another way, like I can think of another client that I have right now, Kathy, again, we lost 20 pounds. We started her reverse diet. She was, um, through that reverse diet, she gained about three pounds. And so now she's managing on a little bit higher, her weight's up a little bit, but she's just holding more water, holding a little more glycogen, has a little bit more food or digestive system. Measurements have all stayed very consistent. Um, so it's a very, it depends answer. Just like you said, depending on the individual, some people will reverse diet and they'll stay the exact same weight. They won't necessarily fill up with glycogen or um, with more water retention or more of that digestive system. So everybody is different. But what I always tell people when they start a reverse diet is if if you're not reverse dieting from chronic fatigue or chronically dieting and your, your metabolism is just crashed, you're maintaining on 1200 calories. Well, it only makes sense for you to, to make your metabolism get comfortable somewhere 16, 17, 18, 1900, 2000 calories, potentially down the road, which is going to come with potentially a little bit of weight gain, because we have to just, we have to bite the bullet and we have to get your metabolic rate in a good position and get your hormones and get your metabolism strong before you can even think about progressing your body composition. Health comes first, body composition comes second, right? And so for that type of type of individual, just like you said, maybe you're going to have to go through a, a grueling reverse diet. If you've been chronically dieting forever for a very long time, that is, um, to get you your metabolic rate up to a better position and get your hormones in a better position. But somebody who's just been dieting for typically, let's say anywhere from a, a 10 to 30 ish week marker, which is generally the longest I'll ever let somebody diet for is roughly like that 30 weeks before taking a considerable time amount of time away from the diet. Those types of people who have been controlling things and haven't been in that chronic diet for years on top of end. I always go into it saying, expect two to three pounds of weight gain right mm-hmm. off of the, just getting back to maintenance, expect to hold on to some glycogen, expect to hold on to um, a little bit more water, expect to have a little bit more food in your digestion, digestive system. So just expect to gain an additional two to three pounds. And then from there, it's setting yourself up with the right expectations, right? With Haley, like I said, if you continue to lose through the reverse diet, well, win-win, that's amazing. She's not losing anymore because we've got her back to her actual maintenance. And now she's just starting to kind of maintain around that 176, 177-ish marker. I said, I wasn't going to say her weigh but I just threw them out there. But, um, but yeah, so there's that type of person who can drop down and, um, through the reverse diet, they'll continue to lose for 
those reasons of cortisol being able to flush out, your stress isn't quite as high, um, and you continue to lose because you're in a small deficit until we get you to the top end of that reverse diet and you're back at your maintenance level. And then there's others who right from the start will gain an additional two to three pounds as we start to increase calories because you'll start to hold a little bit more glycogen, hold a little bit more water, um, have more food in your digestive system. So to be scared of a, of a reverse diet, if you've been dieting for years on end, the reverse diet is going to be harder and harder. And you're going to have to expect a little bit of weight gain potentially on the back end of that, just to get your metabolic rate and hormones in a good position to be able to build your baseline foundation back up, if that makes sense. But if that's not you and you've been intelligent and you've been periodizing your nutrition correctly, a reverse diet really isn't that scary because all we're doing is taking you from a deficit back to a maintenance level, which isn't going to necessarily change the amount of body fat on your body. We're just getting you eating more so that you can sustain the result that you created in that deficit um, more optimally with better balance to have better hormones, to have a stronger metabolic rate, to have more flexibility, to be able to eat out, to be able to enjoy yourself a little bit more while still being able to hold on to that result long-term. So I understand a lot of people are scared about eating more, but you have to remember the deficit isn't the goal. The goal is to go through the deficit to create the, the result to get back to a maintenance level of calories long-term to be able to maintain that result with more flexibility so that you're not in this um, yo-yo effect of dieting really hard for a long time until your hormones are crashed, your metabolism has slowed down, you're extremely hungry and you end up saying F this and go back to old habits, right? And then just end up gaining all that weight back without taking care of your metabolism. So now your metabolism is downregulated and you, and you weigh 20 pounds more. Well, that's, that's what you're more likely to have happen if you don't go through the reverse diet. And that's how I always frame it. The clients that are nervous about going through it, like you stay where you're at, you're much more susceptible to weight gain in the long run, as opposed to just biting the bullet and increasing calories now to accept a two to three pound gain, um, to be in a more flexible position, to be able to hold on to that result long-term. Mm -hmm. And I think something important to kind of add on to that too, is I think if you're going into the reverse diet, like fearing like weight gain, I think you're more focused on like the short term versus like the actual, like bigger picture of things. Like when you're going to reverse diet, we're looking at the long-term benefits, not just like, you know, the immediate, like, you know, two to three pound weight gain. It's, you know, I've had a lot of clients, you know, who go through a reverse diet, like they don't like seeing the scale go up, but then they message me like my cravings are going away. I'm sleeping through the night again. My energy is consistent through the day. My strength in the gym is up. I feel strong. Like I feel good. I'm like, to me, that's worth an extra, you know, three to four pounds in the body. And you're like, we're looking at, you know, because when you die, you're going through hormonal, you know, adaptations, you're going through metabolic adaptations. If like you just keep putting it off out of your weight gain, you're just delaying something that you know is going to have to happen eventually, except when it happens, it's just going to be a much rougher thing to go through because you, you just kept putting it off longer and longer and longer. Man, that's a really good point that I didn't even think about bringing up in terms of you're exactly right. What, what you have to think about here is let's say that you do have a, a two to three pound gain in terms of everything that we've mentioned here. When you're dieting, just as Alex said, the longer that you diet, the worse that your sleep is going to get, the more your hunger is going to increase, right? The more stressed out over time, you're going to feel the worse your training sessions are going to be the less motivated that you generally become. So if you're always staying in that diet over the long term, um, that's going to get worse and worse and worse, but to be able to go, the point of the reverse diet is to recover 
all of that to get you training harder, to get you sleeping better, to get your hunger under control, to get your energy levels higher, and to get your, your strength levels increasing once again. The reverse diet allows us to sustain the level of body fat that you've created through the deficit on higher calories to be able to increase all of those to feel better once again. So to be, to have created the result that you created, but now get back to feeling 100% with that result that you created. And if you just continue to diet, you're going to continue to feel like shit. And so what you have to understand is that two to three pound gain, the positives that come from that. And when you can get emotionally away from the scale and learn to look at it from a logical standpoint and realize that weight gain and fat gain aren't the same thing. As long as you're not exceeding maintenance, you're not gaining fat, but we're going to get all of these other benefits from it. Like you're setting yourself up to just, as I said before, um, long-term sustainability in your new body composition at the body fat levels that you've created, as opposed to feeling like shit, always being hungry, feeling like you're locked in this cage of, um, low calories that never allows you to be able to actually enjoy the result that you created long-term because you're in this scarce mindset of feeling like, Oh, if I eat any more, I don't trust myself. And I'm just going to go balls to the wall and gain all that fat back. Um, so I think that's a super important point that you brought up, man. I, I'm, I'm glad that you said that because that's something that doesn't get touched on enough. Mm -hmm. I think that I would say that, I mean, covers the basics of kind of like what to expect during reverse diet. Like I said, everything's kind of individualized, but from like a general kind of rule, like that's kind of what I would expect going into that reverse diet. I agree. And if you're somebody listening to this and we're talking about this and you, and you're thinking, man, I am that person who has super low energy. I am that person who has super low motivation levels at this point. I do feel like I'm locked in this cage of these low calories and I've created this result, but my mind's not in it. I feel like shit. Um, my energy super low and I'm extremely hungry. You're the person that we're talking to, right? You're the person that needs to go through a reverse diet. Um, and I know that's tough, but it's the truth. And we have a lot of um, episodes. If you go back, I don't know exact numbers, but if you go back and search through episodes, I have episodes talking about reverse dieting, how to go about it and how to set it up for yourself in detail to help you get started. And if you ever have more questions on that, as always, there's um, the link down below lostlifting.com backslash podcast to where you can go leave more in-depth questions. They'll come right to my inbox and we'll bring them back onto the show to, to talk about them deeper as well as I'll just get back to you answering any specific questions you have for your, for your specific situation too. So, um, I think you crushed that, that one, man. I, I, uh, I really like your answer to that. So let's move on to the next one, which is, is it okay to do yoga and Pilates on rest days? I'm going to start this one off again with a kind of like, it depends answer <laughs> word. Like, like a lot of my stuff is like, it depends because it, it's so dependent on like what the person's doing outside of the yoga and Pilates sessions. And you know, if it's someone who's say working out five days a week and then has a two rest days of like yoga and Pilates, like, like I know, like I've seen people go to yoga and Pilates and it can be one hell of a workout. Like mm -hmm. people can walk out of there, like dripping in sweat, like Pilates, like, especially like if you're not used to it, like that can be a lot of stress on the body by itself. And so the goal of rest days is the way I kind of like to explain it to clients is you have like a stress, stress bucket kind of throughout the day, throughout the week over the, you know, course of the week or just, you know, over the course of your lifetime, you know, you accumulate stress, you know, from work, relationships, workouts, nutrition, all these different things. And if you're just constantly just like hammering, hammering yourself down each and every single day, never, never giving your body like off days, like the point of those off days is to like actually take rest, I feel like. And so while it may not be like a strength workout, 
it's still providing your body some level of stress. But if it's something where, you know, say you're used to working out three days a week and you want to make it like a fourth or a fifth day Pilates and yoga, then I'd say like, you know, then like those rest days can be perfectly fine. I just wouldn't fill your entire rest day gap with yoga and Pilates. But it also depends like what's the intensity of the yoga. Like, is it just like a slow 30 minute stretch? Is it actually like, is it actually like de-stressing you or is it just adding more stress onto an already stressed out body? I agree 100%. I think if you're working out five days per week and then your two rest days for the week and you're working out hard in those five days, you're strength training, you're focusing on progressive overload over time. Um, you're pushing yourself in those sessions and the majority of your sets are relatively close to failure. If you're doing that five times per week and then you're doing a hard yoga and hard Pilates session on the other two rest days out of the week, wouldn't really call those two rest days. Right. I, I think that mm -hmm. that's just going to accumulate way too much stress over time. But if you're somebody who let's say yoga and Pilates are, are there's something that you really enjoy, you're emotionally attached to it. It makes you feel good. It makes you feel happy. It makes you feel fulfilled at the end of the day. And it's something that you want to do for those reasons. Then I would say building out your program, we have to take that into consideration and almost program those in as training days as well. Right. And so then maybe it's just, as you said, maybe it's okay, well, we're going to, we're going to program three strength days because you have body composition goals, but you're emotionally attached to yoga and to Pilates. That's amazing. If it makes you feel good, 100%, then we'll program those in on another two days. And if they're, if they're hard sessions, because they're going to be stressing you out as well, right. We need to account for that. And then on top of that, we're going to need another two days of just like active recovery to where maybe it's a 20, 30, 40 minute walk outside. That's more of like a, a parasympathetic as opposed to something that's, that's putting more stress on your nervous system and on your mind at the end of the day. And so it, it all just comes down to, in my opinion, are you doing yoga and Pilates because you love it? And it's something that you can't see yourself not doing. And it's, it's how you identify yourself. Well, if that's the case, then 100%, let's make it work. That does mean that it might come at the sacrifice of being able to train quite as much to be able to make sure that you're fully recovering. But at the end of the day, it's what we're trying to do is we have to look at your goals in terms of what you want to create, what you want the efforts that you're putting into your fitness to ultimately create for you. And then from there, we have to build something out that makes sense to actually get you to that. And generally that doesn't mean that's five days of strength training. And then on the other two days, go and hammer yourself away as well, because when it comes to building up your body composition, adding more lean muscle definition to your frame, your recovery is just as important as the actual training sessions themselves. Right. And so if you're training super hard and then you're, you're crushing yourself on your rest days with Pilates and, and hard yoga sessions, well, then you're not getting the recovery that you need. And so it just makes sense to pull back the strength training. If you're attached to those, um, to maybe, like I said, three days per week, add the other two days of Pilates and yoga in, and then give yourself two full rest days as well. So that would be, um, that would be my take on it as well. It's a very, it depends answer. Just as you said, if you're doing yoga and Pilates on your rest days, because you think like it's going to help your progress in the long term, if your goals are body composition, dropping body fat, adding more lean muscle definition to your frame, I would say pull back on it. If yoga and Pilates are things that are super important to you and you want to be doing them and you feel good doing them and they, they just make you happy, then let's find a way to work them into your schedule while still making sure that you're recovering properly to get out of your strength training sessions, um, the things that you need to in order to make progress. Mm, and I, th I think that kind of goes for just like a, like a general general rule of thumb where 
like I know a lot of people who go to the gym four or five days a week and they're like, well, I'm taking like an active rest day, but I'm running five miles on those days, doing like an ab workout, doing all this different stuff. And I'm like, so you're not taking rest days. You're just not lifting weights on those days, but it's still an accumulation of stress over time where like you don't need to be doing things seven days a week. If you want to fit in like running or add all different stuff, figure out a way to like fit it into four or five days of working out and give your body two actual days off from the gym where you're just simply just doing like a, like a really low kind of light stretch or a simple walk outside or something where your body's actually able to like de-stress from the week. Yeah. That, um, that brings up a really good point too, in terms of when we're programming for people, right. And, and creating workouts and whatnot. Um, one of the common things that I'll get from, not even just from, um, from women, I get it from everybody is, Hey, can I add a little bit more to this at the mm-hmm. end of the training session? Or, Hey, can we add one more day to this? Do you know what I mean? Cause they look at it and like, Oh, this doesn't look near as hard as what I've already been doing, um, in the past, like on my own. It's so like, I, I feel like I, I can accumulate more. And right. And when somebody says that to me, like the first thing that triggers in my head is you're probably not giving the effort that I'm wanting you to give in what I'm already giving you, or you wouldn't be asking for more on the back end of that, right? Do you run into that same thing? Yeah, I definitely say it's common. And I wouldn't say it's like, you know, I think it's just like men and women in general. And it's just used to seeing, because I know a lot of those, just like Instagram workouts, Facebook workouts, YouTube workouts, you know, it's those bodybuilders, you know, like it's like the high volume workouts where it's 10, 15 exercises a workout, where I'll tell you if I got 15 exercises to do, well, those first five, first 10 exercises, I'm going to leave stuff in the tank knowing I still have five more to go at the end. If I only have five, six exercises, well, I know I got five to six to make good use of that workout. And if I don't crush every single one of those movements, then I'm going to go home without like a, not like a failed workout, but like knowing it wasn't as good as it could have potentially been. And so I think it really kind of comes down to looking at your intensity on the days in the gym and usually able to make, you know, four, like if you get, if you get four workouts a week, five to six movements, I think you should be able to make that work and have that essentially like crush you after, you know, four workouts for the week. I agree. I'm working, well, not working with, but I'm running um, some of Paul Carter's programming right now. I've talked a lot about that on the podcast on, on different episodes with, with Jeremiah, when we're just chatting about our own training. And um, I started running a lot of his programming. It's been probably like three months ago now, since I started doing a lot of that. And all that he has programmed for us is literally like four exercises per session. Mm-hmm. And it's, you go in and it's, it's really on the accumulation weeks, it's one hard set um, per exercise. And then from there, like he'll add in higher intensity things where maybe he'll add like a super set onto it or add like a triple drop set or a cluster set or something like that to accumulate more volume into later into the meso cycle. But when you go into a session like that and you know, you've only got four or five exercises and you've got one really, really hard set in those exercises to do, you, you know, that you have to take it all out, right? Not leaving really any reps left in the tank and, and take it and really maximize that one set to accumulate enough tension and enough effective reps. And I think it just adds, like, for me, I go into the gym and it it literally takes me right now, 40 to 50 minutes to get through a session. Um, and there's, it's far less time, but when I leave, I'm far, I would say I'm far more taxed at this point as well, just because I had to give a lot more effort to that single big set in that session. Um, 
and I've seen much in the last three or four months, I would say I've seen much better progress hypertrophy wise in terms of building muscle and adding, um, adding more shape to my physique just in the last three to four months that I did in the last year, trying to do five, six, seven exercises with three to four working sets per exercise, because I know going into those lifts, um, like the first couple of lifts, I know I was leaving way more reps left in the tank than mm-hmm. I thought I was telling myself I was leaving. Oh, I'm leaving like three, maybe, maybe four reps left in the tank, but legitimately like looking back at a lot of my training videos from previous, as opposed to the training videos. Now that I take of myself, just to gauge my intensities. When I look at those old videos, I can tell that my last couple of reps are not slowing down whatsoever. And I've probably got an additional six, seven reps in the tank, meaning that those reps those sets that I'm doing are basically just junk volume. They're accumulating a little bit of fatigue, but they're not accumulating any mechanical tension to accrue muscle growth over time. And so I'm basically just working out for the sake of working out, right? I'm I'm not necessarily getting out of anything out of the efforts that I'm doing as opposed to now putting way more effort into that one set per exercise that I have and taking it to absolute failure to make sure I'm accumulating enough of those reps that are close to failure because I'm taking that exercise to absolute failure. I get way more out of it in far less time. Um, and it just ensures that when you're taking those sets to failure ensures you're getting everything out of that set that you can. I think a lot of people, make that mistake. I know I just went off on a tangent that's on a little bit of a different topic, but I think that's super important. I have, a making an Instagram post on that today. So it was just top of mind, but I think so many people do that and create junk volume inside of their program Mm -hmm. because they're trying to do three, four, five, six sets per exercise. When those first four working sets weren't anywhere close to failure, that doesn't lead to any sort of progress in any sort of way. Mm -hmm. I like to think of it kind of as like a, like a sweet spot. I think a lot of people are either on kind of like one side or the other or like one, either they're just leaving too many, rep, too, like too many reps in the tank. They're going kind of for like that burn. But as soon as that burn kicks in, they're like, okay, like that's enough. But like, that's not really enough like stimulation to like give you the adaptation that you want. And there's also the people who feel they need to be crushed like every single workout. And it's like, like I said, do eight to 10 exercises where those first four exercises were, like, were enough and now you're just exceeding the point of what your body can recover from driving like the point, like later on to the week where like, it just takes your body longer to recover. And it's actually just driving up extra, like, like an extra stress response and extra inflammation in the body that you didn't need to get the stimulus that you wanted. Exactly. Without like you're doing sets for the sets, for the sake of doing sets that aren't leading to any accrued mechanical tension. That's not going to lead to any help in terms of your body composition or building any muscle. You're just fatiguing yourself for the sake of fatiguing yourself. And that's the thought Mm -hmm. of junk volume. You you hear that term always brought up on social media, right? Junk volume, which just essentially means the sets that you're doing aren't hard enough to accrue mechanical tension, which is the driver of muscle growth. And so you're, you're just doing sets for the sake of doing sets that accumulate some fatigue, but don't accumulate or create any progress on the back end of it. So, Mm -hmm. um, if you want to, again, to bring this full circle, if you want to do yoga and Pilates, um, they're super light sessions. It doesn't really like fatigue you in any sort of way. Sure. Go ahead. If you're training hard already and on you, your couple of rest days, you're doing hard yoga and Pilates sessions, probably not the best idea. And you need to find a better way to be able to program that in and have everything still make sense for your goals at the same time. I gotta say, we, I totally forgot that we were in talking about yoga and Pilates before Me too. that. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I figured I better, I better bring it back and touch on that. I, I'm known for going off on my brain starts like a question's asked. And then my brain thinks about a side tangent and I, I go off on it sometimes. So I apologize to the listeners if 
if you were serious about that question, I just took it in a totally different way. Ready for the next one? Yep. All right. Um, is 1200 calories too low? This is a super common one that I get in my, my DMs all the time. So I'd say this one isn't necessarily like as bad as people think it is. I think it has more to do with the tagline of catching your attention on like Instagram or Facebook. Whereas it's kind of like that, like demon number of like, oh, you're eating 1200 calories. Like that's too low. But I think there's a lot of situations where it could potentially be used well. And what I mean by that is, for example, and I don't know if you have any like bigger competitors who like listen to your show, but if you're like, you know, getting ready for competition, you may need to enter periods of 1200, 1100, you know, kind of low, you know, that kind of low thousand, you know, calorie number. And like, that's not totally like, I guess, unnormal, especially for kind of the smaller, lighter weight bikini competitors. Um, You could be looking at something like calorie cycling through the week, where if, you know, I've had a client who went down to like 1100 during the week, but on the weekends was upwards of like 2000 calories. So, you know, as like the week, you know, average averages out, she's actually closer to, you know, 1700, 1800 calories. So looking at her diet, like on that specific day, which I think kind of gets people in trouble where they see someone's calories at like, you know, say 1200, 1300, 1300, they don't know the rest of the story behind it. But I will say, as a general like, uh, rule of thumb for someone, it's not a number that I would spend too long at. It's more of kind of like a get down and get out once you've accomplished your goal. Um, but you shouldn't be eating 1200 calories and like not losing weight. Yeah. If you are having to ask that question, if 1200 calories is too low, if, if you're not sure, it's probably too low because you're probably newer to tracking, right? You probably haven't spent a lot of time optimizing your metabolism. You haven't spent a lot of time um, just in this process yet, meaning 1200 calories is far too low. Just as Alex said, if you're a bikini uh, a competitor, if you're getting to very, very, very low levels of body fat, you've been dieting for a long time, you have the specific goal that you have to hit and you don't have a choice, but to allow your metabolic rate and your hormones to crash just to get to a certain level of leanness, then sure. 1200 calories might not be low for that specific situation, but for 99.9% of people out there that are not in that situation, 1200 calories is most likely too low for your specific situation. Mm-hmm. If, if you're having to diet on 1200 calories and you have more than 10 to 20 pounds of, of body fat that you have to lose, to be in a comfortable position that you feel comfortable in your body composition, um, 1200 calories is, is way too low. If, if you're having to diet on that low of calories, I would argue that the best thing that you could do is do a reverse diet first and optimize your metabolic rate and get that increased to be able to drop calories back down to something that's going to be more manageable for the, for the majority of people. And my experience with this too, is I'll talk with people and they'll say, well, I'm eating 1200 calories. and I'm not losing weight. And my first question is, okay, are you tracking all of your food every single day? Well, yeah, for the most part, am I, are you weighing your foods every single day? Oh yeah. Well, for the most part, are you tracking every single weekend? Well, most of them. But if you start to, to accumulate all of that together and you really start to get a, a true understanding of their adherence to that 1200 calories, maybe they're hitting 1200 calories. Honestly, maybe, maybe like 
three or four days out of the week and the rest of the week, like there's a lot of nuance that takes place. And so truly maybe your average for the week is closer to 18, 19, 2000 calories per day. And um, you're just choosing to look at the few days of the week where you're actually hitting 1200 calories. But when you accumulate that over a week and over a month, you're probably closer to a maintenance level of calories because you have had this high flux of your calorie intake on a day-to-day basis. And so you're not really eating 1200 calories and not losing weight. It's just that you're not actually eating 1200 calories, right? I made a post on this before too, is if you, if you're eating 1200 calories and not losing weight, um, I want you to track your consistency with your workouts, your caloric intake and your protein intake for the next 30 days. If you're not, if you don't have a check mark on at least 26 of those days over the next 30 days, you're not really eating 1200 calories and not losing weight, right? Because so many people get caught in that minutia, in my opinion. And so for specific, specific individuals, sure, 1200 calories might not be too low, but for the vast majority of people out there, you're going to be able to lose weight on a higher caloric intake. And I see this with people all the time as well as they come in, they say they're eating 1200 calories. I set them up somewhere closer to like 15, 1600 calories and say, just focus on hitting this every single day. And they start to lose weight and they think, oh, I, how did I start eating more food? And I started to lose weight because I'm eating more. Well, that doesn't make any sense. And it's just that it was more realistic for you to be able to stay 85 to 95% consistent on 1500 to 1600 calories per day, as opposed to that 1200 calories per day. And so your adherence was higher, which actually started to have you make progress better on the back end of that. And a lot of people will get that confused and they'll say, oh, well, starvation mode is a real thing, right? To where I'm not losing weight on low calories, but I increase my calories and I, I start to lose. It's not that you were in starvation mode before. It was just that you're on such a low amount of calories that your relationship with food was off. Your adherence was off. We increased that. It was much more realistic and sustainable for you. So you could actually start to create progress a little bit slower, but in the long term, it ended up being faster because it was much more consistent in the long run. One of the things that like, aggravates me when I see it, and I see it all the time like on Facebook and Instagram, it's, it kind of goes back to like the taglines. And it's like, your metabolism's like broken. And it's like, no, it, it just adapts to the environment that you give it. And it's like, if you're, if, if that's, you know, if, if you've given it years and years of like chronic dieting, when you can expect, you know, things to be all over the place and fluctuate up and down and have your, you know, sleep and biofeedback, you know, kind of just kind of be in the gutter. But also, you know, if you give it, 1300 1200 calories for you know long periods of time thinking that's th- thinking that's like that's what you need well and your internal health also is going to go on to reflect that where like Chaz was saying i think if you do have like if you actually are 200 calories and you can't lose weight go through that reverse diet and spend some time there and not just like a month or two i'd say at least and i'd be curious to kind of hear hear, hear your thoughts on it but if someone's actually have, having that issue i would say at least like three to six plus months at like maintenance, because if, if, if that's a problem, there's probably some underlying functional issue going on, whether it be hormonally or like metabolically and like, that's not, that's not gonna be fixed. is in like a month or like a single month or two. Yeah. I've, I've honestly lost clients because of that before or lost, like signing people up because they come in, we have conversation, we look at logs, we look at what they're eating and they're truly eating around 1200 calories. Um, and they're not losing because their meta- their metabolism has truly adapted and they've been chronic chronically dieting for so long that they're they're just crashed their hormones are down their metabolic rate is down and um they always ask well and so i break down like you need a reverse diet a proper reverse diet and they always the first question is always well how long how long is this going to take 
And I could, I could tell them it's all, it's only going to take one month. It's only going to take two months. And the majority of those people, like, honestly, I could probably get to, to sign up and we could work with, but that's not enough time for the vast, vast majority. There's some people that are going to be able to reverse diet for a couple months. If, if you've been in a diet for a few months and, and like you're feeling fatigued, taking a couple months to reverse diet, to be able to, before you go back in and finish off the last 10 to 15 pounds, absolutely possible. But if you're somebody who's, who's been chronically dieting for a long time, like it's going to take a solid six months to get you to a position to where you're, to where we've got you on a high enough caloric intake that didn't lead to a bunch of fat gain in the short term to have to get you there, to get you feeling better, to get you eating more, to get you healing your relationship with food and your body first, to get you in a position to be able to drop calories back down and be able to lose more on like 1400, 1500 calories. That's a good six to 12 months away to be able to do that. And people hate to hear that, but it's the truth. And it's the consequence of being so irresponsible with your diet first and your caloric intake for such a long time and suppressing calories, which ultimately suppresses your body, which leaves you in no position, but to invest that much time into increasing calories to get you to a point to where even looking at fat loss again, even makes sense when your metabolism and your hormones are in a, a position that they can actually respond the way that we need to, to be able to help you create a, a sustainable result that keeps your health intact in the long run. So I couldn't, I couldn't agree anymore. I always tell people in that position, like, look, this is where you're at. You've been doing this for years on top of years. It's going to take at least six to 12 months to get you to a point to where mentally and physically you're in a spot to be able to, to diet down again. And people hate to hear that, but it's the honest truth. Mm -hmm. You agree? I, I, I agree. And I think it's something I say, I, I agree. And I think it's something that it's hard for us to kind of fight because of the misinformation out there. I don't know if you've had clients go through the same thing, but I've had clients come in, especially, you know, people with like a bit of weight to lose like 50 plus pounds. And like, they go to their doctor with some, with a, with some health issue and they put them on some like 800 to a thousand calorie meal plan, mm -hmm. but like you're going to be eating these things. And this is, this is all you're going to eat for like the next six months, but it's also, you'll see the weight does come off, but 95% of the time, it's probably going to come right back on once you actually like feed your body up and like get off like those, like I, like I'm thinking of one, like one specifically where it was like, this guy could eat three meals a day and they were like 250 to 350 calories each, but the guy was over like 300 pounds. And it's like, for me, like I was like a 20, you know, 20 year old kid or 20 year old teenager versus like a doctor, you know, who's been in the field for 20 years. Like, who are you, like, who, like, who are you going to trust here? Yeah. Nothing pisses me off more when I see that when like, there's, there's some doctors that I will say know what they're doing on the nutrition front. And this might be a hot topic or, or piss some people off, but truly doctors are trained in how to cure diseases, but not necessarily how to prevent diseases. You know what I mean? Like our jobs mm -hmm. as coaches in this field are to help people prevent getting themselves in type, those types of situations. And so like, I, I get a lot of people that, that will, 
that will have doctors consultations and stuff and come back with these ridiculous meal plans, as you just said, as like 800 to a thousand calories, which is basically just throwing a bandaid on it to help somebody lose weight super quickly. But then on the back end of that, like you're not truly teaching them anything on how to sustain it or how the metabolism works or how your hormones work or how you're going to feel throughout that diet or how to, to recover from that diet or anything like that, that just leaves people basically thrown to the wolves. That's going to leave them in this perpetuous yo-yo cycle for the rest of your life, for the rest of their lives. And so um, not that doctors don't know what they're doing because they absolutely do in, in a lot of areas. But if, if you're going to a doctor and they're setting you up on a diet, um, chances are I would just get a second opinion from somebody who has actually gone to school and actually has a lot of experience in the nutrition field. Because in my experience, doctors and nutritionists and dietitians perspective on nutrition and weight loss are very different, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I was watching something, I, I can't remember like what or who told me or what I saw, but I was told that they maybe get three to six, or doctors get like three to six credit hours of like nutrition through their, I guess, like education versus like, it was like comparing that to how many hours they get on like medication, like pharmaceuticals and all those yeah. things. And it's like the pharmaceuticals, I like blows it out of the water. But you take like someone with like a bachelor's in like exercise science, they're doing six, nine, you know, 12 hours of like nutrition courses where, you know, like it's, yes, like the doctors do have extra education. Like there are plenty of, plenty of them out there who do have like the proper education, but there's also like the fair share who took the bare minimum three to six, you know, credit hours in college. And it's kind of like, okay, I'm just, you know, just do that. And then they just kind of just go off what they see on the news and what they Mm -hmm. see on the internet and I mean, I don't got to tell people, but the information out there is all over the place. So that's a good point. That's such a good point. And I know that you run into that as well um, with a lot of ladies that come in on birth control and different things who go into it with not having their expectations set up accordingly in terms of like how their body's going to respond and what the implications of that are over the long term. And so they end up with you after um, ending up in this poor position after taking birth control for such a long period of time that um, you kind of have to re-educate them on the entire process. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I'd say it's, there's definitely a difference between, and this is something that like, it will start some kind of discussion I'd say, but there's a big difference between like Western medicine doctors and looking more like the functional, like holistic side of things just in the way that they tend to like diagnose things. And I, I think about this up on uh, the podcast two weeks ago, but I mean, I've had clients come and, you know, they come in like PCOS. Oh, my, my doctor told me I could never lose weight. And then six months on the road, they're down 20, 25 pounds. I've had, you know, clients essentially like not like reverse PCOS, but get it to like where it's so minimal. It's like there are no more like flare-ups or, you know, abnormalities with it. That, that, that doctor is essentially saying like you're, pretty much like find is to go out, you know, keep doing what you're doing. Um, I've had, like I said, clients who were told like they were infertile for life, you know, they get some, you know, Dutch testing or, or you know, hormonal panel done. And this is because like their sex hormones were tanked and like they didn't have the proper, you know, hormonal status to conceive it or, you know, to have a child, you know, especially with digestive stuff too, where it's just like, oh, you have gut issues, like this eat low FODMAP and you'll be good. But it's like, okay, but what do you do after, or like, you know, say this is the most common one where girls come in, especially when they're really, really young, like 14, 15 years old, they start noticing like acne or 
you know, period cramps or just anything like this PMS related. And it's always, oh, we can just get you put on birth control. And the amount of messages that I've gotten that like women who are like 26, 27, that are like, okay, like I'm ready to start having a, like, I want to start, you know, trying to have a kid, but I have no idea. And I'm just scared to come off birth control because I have no idea what it's done in my body over the last 10, 15 years. Like what, like, where do I even start? And like, how long is it going to take me to get back to normal? And like, that's the stuff that like, I wish they would teach just so there's not so many people that are just like left clueless as to about like how their body works or like what they can do to reverse things or manage things. Like I say, I've not reversed, but more so like manage things from a, from a more like holistic standpoint without like the depression medication, anxiety medication, mm. the inflammatories, the NSAIDs, the birth control, like all different things. I think there's a, there's, there's, there's a time and place, but it's not like the end all be all forever. I couldn't agree anymore. I think you nailed that right on the head. I know you've made some posts on that in the past and it, it opened my eyes to that as well, which I think is super interesting. If um, we're going to wrap that up, honestly, right here, man, with that. So okay. if people have questions about any of that, or there are ladies that are struggling with any of that, or just would like to pick your brain or ask a little bit deeper questions on that sort of thing, where can um, people find you to be able to, to directly access you to be able to um, ask some more personal stuff? If, if any of the listeners have anything. So I'll give you three places. First, I'll say, like I said earlier, in the in the podcast show notes, they have the questions there. They can get their questions answered, you know, more in depth, like on the podcast, if they kind of want it, you know, more spoken. As I'm, I'm limited as like what I can give, like on Instagram, mm. just with like this, you know, the, the amount of characters that I can type. Um, that that's one place in the show notes. Ask ask a question, get an answer on the podcast. I do have um, a free Facebook group. Lost and Lifting Women's Weight Loss Workouts Tips and Tricks, which Chaz, you can put um in the we'll link it. notes again. Yep. yep, we'll link it. And then my Instagram is Alex underscore Johansson, A-L-E-X underscore J-O-H-A-N-N-S-S-O-N. Yeah, last time um, when we put it in the bottom up at first, it was my fault. I, I You sent that to me and it was some random... Um, Instagram some, like, 16 year old kid who yeah. had like a selfie, like long <laughs> yeah. hair down, like from Sweden. I'm like, oh. I don't want people thinking that's me. You're yeah. missing, like, and it's it's super common, but there's a difference in like the way I guess like Scandinavians like spell their last name. A lot of them just use like the one S, hmm. so it's J O H A N N S O N. Not realizing just... if they type that in, it's gonna be someone totally different that's not me. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, the podcast editor, Travis, who edits all, all our podcasts for us. I, I sent that over to him. I was like, Hey dude, you, you put the name in wrong, um, at the bottom, like it's going to this random 16 year old kids thing. And he goes and switches it for me real quick. And then I go back and look and I'm like, Oh, it was me that, that messed up how I spelled it. I didn't put the two S's. And when I linked it over to him, and so I had to write him back and apologize and say, Hey dude, that wasn't your fault. That was my fault. I apologize. But, uh, but yeah, when I saw that, I was like, Oh man, people are going to go down and, and click on that thing. And they're going to see like the 16 year old kid. Like, Who'd you bring on the team? The Chaz, the Chaz hired. So I, I just thought that that was pretty funny, but anyway, um, I appreciate your, your work, Alex, I appreciate you for just coming on and, and sharing your knowledge as well, man. I, I'm super appreciative just to have you on the team, just because it's been super fun to, to watch you grow and to be able to, to help and see you help all the people that you've been able to help. So I just want to say, I, I, I really appreciate you, man. I look forward to the future as well as bringing you back onto more shows. And like we talked about, we're going to try to do this at least um, a couple of times per month, just because I really like this format better than, than me just doing every single one of these by myself. I like being able to have you here because you bring in another perspective that 
helps us be able to answer questions from just like a, a better spectrum, as opposed to just my view and my experiences, being able to get yours as well is awesome. And that's also something that's been super cool about, um, coaching together as well. Like being able to banter different ideas off of one another with just like certain client situations. Like we're, we're truly able to coach people on the back end together, which gives people a better service in my opinion, if that makes sense, because they're getting two brains as opposed to just one with one perspective. So I just want to say, man, even I, now they got three brains. Yeah. Now with, with Seth to our first calls yeah. tonight, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I haven't even brought that up on the podcast. We'll save that for a later episode, but we did just hire um, another coach inside of loss and lifting who is actually our mindset coach. He's not going to work with clients one-to-one. He's just somebody that we're bringing in for actual group calls to do with all of our clients to talk about things about a lack of motivation, dealing with self-doubt, understanding how to create better habits, understanding better ways to, to talk to yourself, how to treat yourself, just a lot of cool stuff on the mental aspect of, of the process of fitness. Because something that I always say is um, to transform physically, you first have to start with your mental transformation. It's, it's one mental, two physical. And Alex and I do a lot of that work. And obviously we're always working on like getting a better understanding of coaching and helping people through mental barriers. But as we were talking, it was actually Alex's idea to bring on Seth, who is the third coach inside of Lost and Lifting Now, the mindset coach, um, somebody who's professionally trained in that subject to be able to help our clients even more. So we have our first call tonight with um, the whole group going over Seth's call with what I honestly don't even know what he's going to do. I, I don't know what the yet. topic we're, is. We're about to find out. So yeah, I'm super excited for that too. But, but anyway, yeah, man, like I said, I, I appreciate you. I, I appreciate you for coming on. We'll do this again in a couple of weeks and I'll, I'll chat with you soon. Okay. All righty. Talk to you soon. Appreciate you having me on.